Welcome to the Society of Pediatric Sedation podcast, a podcast dedicated to those immersed in pediatric procedural sedation. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine and a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Hello, my name is Ann Stormarkin. I am a professor of pediatrics and a pediatric critical care physician at Case Western Reserve University and Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Today's sedation podcast is dedicated to pediatric procedural sedation of high-risk patients. We are delighted to have as our guest expert, Dr. Mary Landrigan, a senior associate in perioperative anesthesia, Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Landrigan has been involved with the Society for Pediatric Sedation for a long time, and serves on the executive committee as well as the board of directors. In today's podcast, our objective is to gather insight on how sedation practitioners should approach procedural sedation in high-risk patients outside of the operating room, where they focus on pre-screening prior to procedural sedation. Dr. Landrigan, welcome to the SPS Sedation Podcast. Let me start by asking you, why is it so important to assess a child's risk profile prior to procedural sedation. Anna and Pradeep, thank you so much for having me on this uh, Society for Pediatric Sedation podcast. I'm delighted to be here and talk to you on one of the topics that is closest to my own heart, which is the sort of assessment and risk stratification of patients um, in anticipation of procedural sedation, or frankly, for anesthesia. I have no disclosures or conflicts of interest. I think it's important to recognize that not all children are going to be candidates for procedural sedation. And some are going to require referral to an anesthesiologist for a number of reasons that we're going to discuss in this podcast. Obviously, what we all as practitioners um, taking care of children and as advocates for children's safety do not want to have happen is an adverse event or a, a more serious adverse event such as a mortality. Short of that, however, there's a number of reasons why having an inadequately screened patient is going to be problematic. If a patient shows up on the day of the procedure and it is at that point determined that they are not a candidate for sedation, a same-day cancellation is going to result in lost work time for a parent, a dissatisfied parent, a child who has missed a day of school. It's also going to result in inefficiencies on the hospital side when uh, a limited hospital resource, such as a time to uh, perform an MRI scan, has now been wasted and that revenue has been lost. So the goal of sedation pre-screening is not only to uh, prevent a child from having an adverse event, but also to make sure that we are efficiently and uh, timely getting patients in appropriate care. Excellent point, Dr. Landrigan. What are some of the patient risk factors that are associated with sedation-related adverse events? We're really in a fortunate time in the science um, of this field. We have a lot of data which we can extrapolate from our anesthesia colleagues. We also have some very excellent data which um, is specific to pediatric sedation, most notably from the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, the PSRC, which is the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. Now that we have such ready access to electronic medical records, a lot of data can be gathered on very large groups of patients, and thus sort of conclusions can be drawn which were um, impossible to be done in earlier eras. We now have prospective observational data from huge numbers of sedation programs around the country who have identified several risk factors which are associated with sedation adverse events. These studies, um, which have been published in multiple journals around the country, sort of have identified several sort of very high-risk ones which should throw up a red flag to somebody who is going to be giving a patient sedation. A history of prematurity, patient with a current upper respiratory tract infection, 
in patients with obesity greater than 95% of the BMI for age. There's other single center studies which have identified some other things which can be problematic for a sedation. Um, patients who have a higher American Society of Anesthesiologists physical status, so if they have an ASA physical status of three or above, predisposes them to higher incidence of sedation adverse events in the same way that it predisposes them to increased adverse events under anesthesia. Patients who have sleep disordered breathing or obstructive sleep apnea and patients with uh, sort of complex uh, underlying comorbidities, particularly uh, congenital heart disease. Dr. Landrigan, what are some of the concerns with regards to sedation of infants? I ask this question because a lot of sedation programs a priori refer healthy infants under three months of age to the anesthesiologist for all their sedated uh, procedure or imaging needs. That's a really good question. Um, and I think this is, again, one where we do rely on the uh, literature coming out of uh, pediatric anesthesia to give us a lot of information about the risk of children of this age. There are several things which do elevate the risk of infants compared to uh, older children or adults when it comes to uh, procedural sedation and anesthesia. Anatomically, they have very different airways. And in fact, their tendency under um, anesthesia or sedation is to more quickly obstruct their uh, airway than uh, older children will. On top of that, they also are consuming oxygen much more quickly than older patients will be doing which means that if they do go ahead and obstruct their airway, they are that much more quickly going to get into trouble in terms of very quickly becoming hypoxemic. Infants as well have an exaggerated bradycardic response to hypoxemia, which can frankly progress to uh, cardiac arrest much more quickly than you're going to see in an adult patient. Also, because they're so young, their liver enzymes are not fully mature, and they're not going to metabolize sedative and analgesic medications in the same way an older patient will. There was a single center paper which came out in uh, pediatric radiology in 2017 looking at patients being sedated for radiology uh, procedures, which showed that infants younger than six months had a higher incidence, twice as many airway events as older patients did, as well as different dosing requirements for propofol. So it's important to recognize that if you're going to be taking care of very tiny infants, you have to be in a place with the training to do it. And frankly, I don't think it's inappropriate for the very small children to be referred to the pediatric anesthesiologists. Thank you, Dr. Landrigan. How does prematurity pose a risk for sedation-related adverse events? Well, since I'm not a pediatrician, I think how would be difficult to know, but I can tell you that it certainly does. And I think it's a great thing to add to our discussion of infants that we're seeing above, since so very often patients who are going to be coming into the hospital to have sedated procedures as small children very often have a history of prematurity with uh, consequent health issues that they're sort of being followed over time in the hospital. There was a big study which was published in pediatrics in 2016, looking at over uh, 5,500, 55,000, sorry, patients um, and Dr. Havidich and, and colleagues basically found that any child who was born preterm, which was defined as less than 37 weeks gestational age, which is a bit generous for some of us and who would consider only the tinier children to be at high risk. But looking at this very large data set, again, was able to give us information that we would not just be getting based on gut feeling. Children with that history of prematurity were nearly twice as likely to have sedation and anesthesia adverse events. Interestingly, this risk continued up to 23 years of age, long after many of us would have suspected that these sort of problems would have worked themselves out with age and growth. Airway and respiratory events were, of course, the most common, as they are in any group of children getting sedated, but at a much higher risk, um, putting them at a risk for bronchospasm, laryngospasm, and apnea. So the main finding for this study was that prematurely born children have an increased risk of sedation-related airway complications, which persist through many ages um, until they're almost adults, and that uh, sedation practitioners and anesthesiologists need to approach these kids cautiously with a well-planned strategy for dealing with the airway complications should they arise. Dr. Landrigan. How is obesity related to increased risk for adverse events in procedural sedation? 
there is a, a very well-documented association of sedation-related adverse events in obese patients. We see this both in the PSRC database. There was a, a very excellent study put out by Dr. Scherer and colleagues in 2015. There's also very well-documented um, data from the pediatric anesthesia population, again, showing that uh, obesity does put you at an increased risk for adverse events under anesthesia. There's a much higher association of obesity with airway and respiratory events, such as obstruction and secretion and laryngospasm. A lot of this may be due to the anatomic considerations of increased soft tissue around the airway. Um, there is also an increased incidence of difficulty managing an airway in terms of having to uh, more frequently give airway adjuncts, such as oral airways, in order to maintain airway patency. Bag mask ventilation can be more challenging in a very obese patient as well. Obese patients can certainly be sedated, and I think it's important that they receive high-quality care regardless of what they're coming in for, but it's important that practitioners have the vigilance and the understanding of the uh, complexities of the situation so that they can manage the patients who do get into trouble. Thank you, Dr. Landrigan. Can you speak to the risks posed to procedural sedation by children that have upper respiratory tract infections? Yeah, I would say for any of us who deal with children, you know that children in a normal year, the COVID year notwithstanding, children every fall and winter are going to present to you at some degree. They're just having, they're just getting over, or they're just getting into their next upper respiratory infection. And the question is, at what point is it safe to sedate them for a procedure? Because you're never going to find a time when they're completely free and clear of a cold. Fortunately now, again, because of the data that's come through the Pediatric uh, Sedation Research Consortium, we have a little more information to help guide us. Dr. Mallory and, Al and his colleagues in uh, 2017 published in Pediatric data collected on over 84,000 sedation encounters to uh, look at where the patient stood in terms of a recent or a current upper respiratory infection and how did that influence the chance that they were going to have an adverse airway event. What we found was after controlling for the patient, for the type of drug, and for the procedure that was going to be done, there was still an association with a current upper airway infection. The children who were at highest risk were those who had thick secretions, particularly thick granous secretions, and of course, any constitutional symptoms such as a fever and so on. Whereas children who had congestion with no other symptoms, particularly those where it did not seem to be infectious and may have been due to allergy, had a much lower risk of complications to their airway with their sedations. Um, these patients can be sedated by experienced uh, sedation practitioners, but our recommendation is really if you have a child who shows up with an active upper respiratory infection with thick secretions, if it's possible to postpone that sedation for a couple weeks until the child has gotten over the acute phase of their illness, that is probably in their best interest. Obviously, an emergency procedure would have to proceed. And at some point, if you feel the child is sick enough, you have to consider whether it would be more appropriate to, again, refer them to an anesthesiologist for care. Thank you, Dr. Landrigan. Uh, my next question is, what is your take on a child whose mother reports as snores like an adult while sleeping or an infant who has noisy breathing during uh, sleep in absence of an URI? I would say this is definitely one of the things that should throw up a red flag in your mind as to the very real possibility that there's going to be significant airway obstruction and airway adverse events under sedation or anesthesia for that matter. Uh, sleep disorder breathing or obstructive sleep apnea is a well-studied problem in pediatric anesthesia, although there are no similarly large studies in the pediatric sedation literature per se. I think it's quite easy to extrapolate one from the other. When a mother reports snoring in the child, you know, generally healthy infants don't make noise when they're sleeping. And if you do, you have to investigate this a little bit more closely. The usual questions you would ask, does the child wake up to breathe? Do they wake gasping? Do they have pauses in their breathing or stop breathing altogether during sleep? Do they need or prefer to sleep prone in order to breathe comfortably? If the parent changes their head or neck position, does that mitigate the snoring? All of these should give you a 
pause about proceeding with the sedation without having an entirely well-trained team and rescue uh, structure in place in the hospital or in your sedating area to help them should they get into trouble. Um, All children or all individuals are going to have some degree of upper airway obstruction when they're giving sedative medications. That's what sedative medications do is relax the muscles of your upper pharynx. However, in patients who have um, sleep-disordered breathing, this is going to be exaggerated to the point of frank airway collapse. And so practitioners who are going to be taking care of these should be well-versed in uh, the interpretation of entitled CO2 monitoring so that they can identify and mitigate problems before they become a true airway emergency, and they should be prepared to intervene. Nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal airways should be readily available, and practitioners should be well-versed in the treatment of them. It's also important to recognize that Children with obstructive sleep apnea are well-documented of a high sensitivity to opiates, and this can last not only during the procedure where it can more predispose them to having an adverse event, it can also predispose them to having an adverse event that night when they've got home after an anesthetic or sedative if they've been giving any sort of long-acting opiate medications. At my institution, any patient who's going to be having anesthesia who has a history of obstructive sleep apnea is automatically admitted for observation for the night after their procedure, given the high incidence of uh, adverse events with their airways after anesthetics. Excellent points, Dr. Landrigan. Um, Another group of patients that really gives concern to even a very experienced sedation team are those children that have heart disease. What is your advice to practitioners in dealing with this group of patients when they present for procedural sedation? I think that's true. I myself am always met with a feeling of fear when I have a patient with a heart disease on my schedule that I'm going to have to be taking care of it as an anesthesiologist. And I think that's very appropriate. I think these children need to be met with a, a great deal of caution. We as a uh, profession are doing a much better job of helping children with congenital heart disease survive the initial lesion, which would have historically been fatal, which means that there are more and more children and now adults surviving in the world who are showing up for procedures that have nothing to do with their heart, but in fact have to do with other things which may go on in the course of their lives, which need sedation and anesthesia. What this means, if you're going to be taking care of these patients, is you need to know the knowledge of the anatomic details of the initial lesion. You need to understand what the surgical palliation or the repair may have been. And you also need to understand that this is not a static phenomenon, but something that will evolve over time and that symptoms will begin to crop up over time as these patients age. So it's important to get a detailed history from them about the type of cardiac lesion and the repair, as I mentioned before. You need to know their functional status. You need to know what their most recent echoes and EKGs were. You need to know if uh, most of the time they will have been multiply uh, sedated in the past for other things. And it's important to know the history of that and how they've tolerated that. Very often they have medications that they have over time developed an aversion to either because they don't like the feeling of it or simply that it doesn't work for them. And it's good to know what has worked in the past for them and not try to reinvent the wheel. It's also very important to know that if this is an isolated heart disease or if this is part of a syndrome, which could well involve airway abnormalities, and you're going to need to uh, take that into account as well. Patients with pulmonary hypertension are well known to be at a much higher risk for procedural sedation and anesthesia. There was an excellent paper that came at a uh, Boston Children's Hospital from Vivian Nasser and her group looking at um, risk stratification and pulmonary hypertension was very much high on the list. Exercise intolerance should also be a red flag to you that this is a patient who is not doing well in their life and are certainly probably not going to tolerate much in the way of uh, sedative medications. Sedation practitioners should be careful about prolonged NPO times as well, as very often these are children who cannot tolerate the dehydration associated with that and are not going to do well with that, particularly hypoglycemia is also something to think about. So if you're in an um, institution where sedation practitioners are taking care of patients with congenital heart disease, it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach. There needs to be regular and 
collegial contact between the sedation providers, between the cardiologists, the anesthesiologists, um, so that patients can be appropriately triaged to the care team who are both safely and easily going to be able to take care of them. Um, you need to um, make sure that everybody is on the same board and has no sense of false ego about holding onto a patient when it would be more appropriate to refer them to another service. Especially the younger the child is, the higher risk they're going to be. And as I mentioned before, patients with pulmonary hypertension are particularly risky, as are those who have um, evolved into congestive heart failure or with bad ventricular dysfunction. And it's important to consider whether those patients would be more safely cared for by an anesthesiologist. I think as well, um, for folks who are working in a community setting, particularly kids with a complex congenital heart disease, whether it's appropriate to be taking care of them at that hospital. Um, there's a lot of good data in the pediatric anesthesia literature to show that they do better when they are anesthetized at an institution such as the tertiary care institution that has an entirety of a team comfortable with complex congenital heart disease. And I would suggest that one should consider whether they should be sedating children who don't, who are presenting to a hospital that does not have this uh, milieu of care for these patients. I will make a quick note of the fact, just, um, given as we are hopefully emerging from the COVID pandemic when this uh, podcast is recorded, that we are now seeing an increasing number of pediatric patients with MAIC, the sort of multi-system inflammatory post-COVID complication. And as a result of that, we're seeing patients with cardiac dysfunction. Unfortunately, at this point, there's not a lot of data to guide us in regards to how risky this makes an anesthetic or a sedative for these children. And so I would say that close collaboration, again, with anesthesia and cardiologists would be very much indicated for these kids with a, a low threshold for referring these patients to a pediatric anesthesiologist for any sort of sedative care. Dr. Landrigan, that was excellent. My next question is, which other children would you advise sedation practitioners to be extremely cautious about and recommend an anesthesia consult to optimize patient outcomes? There's a few things. Um, there's, of course, there's a few syndromes that any of us who are pediatric anesthesiologists hear the name and it strikes fears in your heart. Williams syndrome is certainly one of them because of their incidence of, of sort of complex and scary um, cardiac catastrophe under anesthesia. Any of the mucopolosaccharidices, such as uh, Hunter's or Hurler syndrome, which can certainly predispose you to extreme difficulty with airway, should be approached with extreme caution, if at all, by a non-anesthesiologist a sedation provider. Masses, such as a mediastinal mass, which you can certainly see in patients with lymphoma. Patients that have large anterior neck masses, such as a lymphatic malformation or a venous malformation, should be approached with extreme caution for their potential to collapse the airway under sedation. Patients with complex genetic syndromes, which can involve airway abnormalities, again, should be approached with caution. Mitochondrial disorders can be particularly challenging to sedate given the fact that many medications are indicated or contraindicated to them, and um, this information does sometimes seem to change by the week. So they should be only cared for in sort of a, a team setting where everyone has had a chance to weigh in on the appropriateness of the sedation regimen. Patients who are septic with marginal hemodynamics should be approached with um, utter caution, um, much as we do when we're going to be taking care of them in any setting. And patients with, uh, with lower respiratory tract infections, it's not just the upper respiratory tract infection, which is much more common in kids, but in the winter months, particularly when you start to see lower respiratory tract infections, those need to be probably postponed, if at all possible, until they have recovered from that infection. Patients who are on home oxygen or non-invasive positive pressure need to be uh, carefully cared for and uh, their disposition post-procedure and post-sedation has to be carefully worked out since they're often not going to be able to return home. And patients with neuromuscular weakness. There's sort of a host of things, most of which can sort of be clustered under the ASA physical status classification. All of these patients would be classified as an ASA physical status classification of three or higher, and they should be approached with extreme caution with a, as I said before, low threshold for uh, referring them to a pediatric anesthesiologist for care. 
Thank you, Dr. Landrigan, for your excellent review. Can you summarize by giving some of the clinical pearls to our listeners in regards to sedating the high-risk patient and uh, careful pre-screening that is required for these patients? Absolutely. Um, As we mentioned before, sort of the high-risk patients who should quickly throw up a red flag in your mind are patients who have a history of prematurity patients with an obesity with a BMI greater than 95% for age, patients with a current ongoing upper respiratory or lower respiratory infection, patients with congenital heart disease, and as I said, basically any patient who falls into the ASA physical classification of three and higher are at a higher risk of experiencing a sedation-related adverse event. Practitioners need to be robustly pre-screening these patients to determine if they are appropriate to be sedated in that venue or need to be evaluated and passed on to somewhere else, another hospital or another service line there, such as a pediatric anesthesiologist, taking into account the urgency of the procedure, as well as um, the experience of the team member, not only the person providing the sedation, but the rescue framework around them for taking care of patients if they were to experience a bad event. careful history with their their experience of previous sedations, uh, current medication regimens um, is going to help you drive your way forward through this morass and onto a a safe outcome for your patient. And as part of that, I think it's important to recognize that teamwork makes the dream work. None of this can be done in isolation. Everything in pediatric procedural sedation, as in pediatric care in general, needs to be done in the context of an entire team of people working towards the good and the safe care of our patients. It's important that all the stakeholders involved in the pediatric sedation be included in the conversation so that everybody can feel comfortable that the patient is being cared for by the right person. And if it's not going to be the sedation team, do we send them to the anesthesiologist instead? Asking for help is never a sign of weakness when we have all focused on the ultimate goal, which is the safe sedation of our children and uh, increasing the the level of care for patients um, in our country and around the world. We need to make sure that we are adequately training our sedation service lines um, and that we are keeping up on proper quality improvement for all of our patients um, so that everybody is being cared for by the right people at the right time with the right medications and with the right uh, tools in place to rescue them. In summary, on today's Society for Pediatric Sedation podcast, Dr. Mary Landrigan has highlighted some of the risk factors in sedation candidates, both in published literature that includes the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, period. Patients with obesity, upper respiratory tract infections, prematurity, congenital heart disease, ASA class greater than three, sleep disordered breathing and obstructive sleep apnea, all pose increased risks to experience sedation-related adverse events that may require interventions. Patient outcomes will be optimized if a sedation service line is comprised of a highly organized team with the required skill set in association with careful patient pre-screening. Sedation practitioners should not hesitate to consult an anesthesiologist for guidance with some of these high-risk patients. This concludes our episode today on procedural sedation of uh, high-risk patients. We thank Dr. Landrigan for our expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short sedation podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode on procedural sedation. Thank you. I'm your host, Dr. Pradeep Kamath, along with my co-host, Dr. Ann Stormorkan.